Bibles, please, and let's turn to Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you today that we can come together in this place, that we can sing praises to your name. We thank you that, Father, we can come together today and to spend time in your word. And we pray that, Lord, as we now open up your word that you would guide us and help us, that you minister through us, Father God, and that you used me to your glory today to be a blessing. Pray that your word, Father God, would encourage us and challenge us, would uh, indeed, Father God, build us up, and that, Lord, we would be moved by your word today, and that, Lord, as we leave this place, we would leave, uh, having known that we've been in your presence and been challenged by your word. We pray that, Lord, you bless our time together in your word today and just guide our time we pray uh, bless now we pray as we open up the word of god and we're sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in jesus name amen in the first uh, seven verses of this epistle to the romans paul establishes an, an official relationship between him and the church at rome and then from verses 8 through verse 16 we have what is known as the general introduction to the letter. Hippo shows his love and concern for the believers at Rome. You know, Paul never shrinks in his letters from uh, taking time to declare his official position as an apostle and therefore the authority that comes with that position. But that's not enough for the apostle Paul. Because one of Paul's great desires was not only just to write a letter or establish his authority, but he wanted to see the people at Rome. In verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, he says, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. In verse 13, he says, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. He'd wanted to go to Rome so that he might have some fruit among them. The word fruit there in verse 13 means results. He wanted to see them edified. But he had been hindered to this point. Nevertheless, his desire had not changed. He still wanted to come to them at Rome. And these next few verses, verses 8 through 16, are a glorious and yet probably unconscious revelation of Paul's great and tender heart for believers, and especially in this context, the believers at Rome. He says, I thank my God, in verse 8. I serve with my spirit, in verse 9. I long to see you, in verse 11. I purpose to come unto you, in verse 13. I am dead, in verse 14. And I am ready in verse 15. These are all personal statements that reveal seven characteristics in the life of the Apostle Paul. In fact, these items are essential. And these should be normal characteristics in every 
true believer's life. And these characteristics should uh, be permeate through you and I. And if they are, they will transform us. And we're going to note just two of those characteristics today and the rest in the weeks to come. The first characteristic is evident in Paul's life that ought to be present in our lives is thankfulness. Thankfulness. He was thankful for them. Look at verse 8. For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He was thankful for them. You know, thanksgiving for his fellow Christians seems to be something that Paul loved to do. In fact, it was always one of the first things he did when he was writing a letter to a church. He would allow them to see his heart and he would reveal to them that he was thankful for them. Whatever epistle you read in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul to a church, soon after the salutation is over, soon after the introduction has finished, he expresses his gratefulness. There is just one church that is an exception to that rule, and that's the church at Galatia. And there's a reason for that exception, and that's because the churches of Galatia left the grace of God and had turned aside to another gospel. As a general rule, Paul expresses gratefulness for the churches he writes to, giving thanks unto God for what God has done in their lives and for their testimony. And notice here in verse 8, the object of thanksgiving is God. He says, for I thank my God, not merely a creator or a preserver, but his God, his Father, the Father of Jesus Christ, the one and only God. Paul says, my God. It's very personal. It distinguishes the God that Paul worships and serves from all other gods in Rome. God was his friend. This was not some abstract uh, relationship that Paul had with God. This was my God. God was the object of Paul's trust. God was the object of Paul's love. In fact, God was the object of everything Paul had. Paul owed everything he was to God. Go with me to 1 Corinthians, please. Chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 9 and 10. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul was what he was by the grace of God. And so he seeks thirst first to give thanks and he does it by saying, giving thanks to my God. I thank my God. This ought to be the attitude of our heart. You know, we want a thanksgiving. You and I ought to give thanks to God. To give thanks to God for all that he's done for us. I mean, when all's said and done, we too are what we are by the grace of God. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we wouldn't be here today. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we wouldn't be saved. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you and I would not have our sins forgiven. It's because of what God did for us, is sending his son to die for us, that you and I are what we are. And it ought to be 
our attitude of heart, one of thanksgiving. He then tells of the person through whom the thanks is given. And that's Jesus Christ. He says in verse 8, For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. It's through Jesus Christ. One commentator said, There is no coming to God but through Christ, nor is there any sacrifice either of prayer or praise acceptable without him. You know, we have the relationship we have with God because of Jesus Christ. We are what we are because of the grace of God available to us through Jesus Christ. You and I have boldness to enter into his presence through prayer, to go before the throne of God because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, God is worthy of our praise, but so is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. Paul says, For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. He thanked God for all at Rome. Not only those that he knew at Rome, and he did know some people at Rome, but for all the church at Rome. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. He gave thanks to God for the believers in the church at Rome. And the reason he gave thanks to God for the believers of the church at Rome is because their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. Verse 8 again that your faith is spoken of throughout all the whole world. He thanks God through Jesus Christ for the believers at Rome because of their testimony, because their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. And the whole world here, of course, in verse 8, means the Roman Empire. The whole of the Roman Empire knew of the faith of the Christians in the church at Rome. The faith of the saints at Rome was so rich it was so remarkable that wherever Paul went on his missionary journey throughout Asia Minor, throughout the Roman Empire, he heard of the testimony of the people of the church at Rome. Paul had never been to Rome. He'd never met these believers. But everywhere he went, he encountered a testimony about the church at Rome and their faithfulness to God. The other day when... The church is often spoken of throughout the world, all too often it's spoken of in a negative way. You know, frequently information comes out, doesn't it, you know, in the newspaper about some misbehavior of some church or the immorality of, uh, uh, in some church or some other uh, thing committed in the name of a church. And the church has a bad name in society today, particularly in Western culture. We just had a royal commission into, uh, uh, into sexual abuse children and one of the biggest names that kept coming up was churches. We, churches in general today are not known for a good testimony. They often are associated with something that's negative. And that brings reproach upon the faith for which our Lord died. The church at Rome, on the other hand, was different. The church at Rome loved to tell the story of the Saviour. They loved to proclaim the gospel so much so that their testimony was spoken of throughout all the known world. And you know, you and I as believers and we as a church should be known for our testimony for Jesus Christ. Throughout this land, people ought to know the name of, uh, if the name of Clarence Valley Baptist Church is spoken, it ought to be known of in a good light. The church at Rome was known for its testimony and so should we be known 
for our testimony. And Paul was thankful for the good reputation of the church at Rome. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, because of the location of where the church was at Rome, this church had a special visibility and a special opportunity to glorify Jesus Christ throughout the empire. <clears throat> you know, it's a little bit harder when you're uh, on the north coast of New South Wales and Clarence Little Baptist Church was situated in the Clarence Valley in the little town of Grafton to be known throughout the whole known world. But the Roman church was in a unique position. They were situated in the Roman Empire, in the capital of the Roman Empire. And traveling that day was relatively common. And the truth of the matter is, you know, you've all heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Well, the truth was they did in those days. All roads did lead to Rome. And so everybody going out from the Roman Empire, going through the Roman Empire, sometime had a contact with Rome. And so the testimony of the church at Rome was easily spread throughout the Roman Empire. And they had a good testimony, which we can praise the Lord for. And Paul certainly did praise the Lord for them. It's no wonder the testimony of the church spread abroad. This growing witness made Paul's ministry easier as he went from place to place. The second characteristic that is evident in Paul's life and not in present as is not only thankfulness, but it ought to be prayerfulness. He prayed for them. He prayed for them. Look in verse 9 and 10. It says, Make a request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come. Sorry, verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests. If by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Paul was prayerful. Not only was he thankful, but he was prayerful. The word serve here in verse 9, it says, For for God is my witness whom I serve, literally means to serve as a priest. It was used in the Greek uh, Greek Old Testament, uh, the Septuagint, which is the a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was used to refer to the service of the priests of the temple, including the idea of worship. In fact, it's interesting, in Philippians 3.3, the same Greek word, translated serve here, is translated worship. And the word is a commentary on what a true Christian service ought to be. You and I are believer priests. And you and I are to be serving the Lord as believer priests as an act of worship unto Almighty God. You and I, when we were saved, we were set apart unto God. You and I are saints, for the Bible tells us that he made us a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And therefore you and I are to serve him as priests. Every act of of our service should be rendered to God as an act of worship as believer priests. The commentator said this in this light, the distinction between sacred and secular disappears. The very ground you work, walk on is holy, and every trivial act acquires meaning. If you remember that, all your Christian service, no matter what it is, will become to you significant of that time when we shall be before the throne of God and serve him day and night, in his temple, as Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15 tells us. 
And that word serve in Revelation 7.15 is the same Greek word as is used here of Paul in, Galatians, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9. And the one area of service, this priestly service that Paul mentions here, is that he prayed. He prayed for them and he prayed for them always and he calls upon God to be the witness to that fact. And the prayer of the apostle here is one of the most illuminating commentaries on the subject of prayer you'll find in the word of God. I want you to notice for me the characteristics of his prayer this morning. First of all, it was genuine in verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul was not playing with words here. His service, his prayer life for them was genuine. It was heartfelt. He says, I make mention of you in my prayers. I do it without ceasing and I do it always. And he says, God is my witness. The apostle wants them to understand that how how serious he is about this matter of prayer. When he says he prays for them always, when he prays for them without ceasing, that he makes mention of them and their needs in his prayer life, he calls God to his witness that says exactly what he is doing. It's a great thing to call upon God to witness that our prayer life is genuine. I mean, think about it. This is the part of the Christian life where there can exist much sham. Because God alone is witness to most of our prayers. Nobody else. In public, men may hear you and I pray, and they may even conclude that we have a remarkable prayer life. But their conclusion might be different if they could see as God sees. Yet Paul said... I pray without ceasing, and I pray for you always. I make mention of you my prayers. God is my witness. For God is my witness is perhaps Paul's acknowledgement of how easy it is to say you'll pray for someone and then fail to do so. He wanted them to know that this was not some passing word, this was not some parting fancy, this was not something that he just said, but that he really did pray for them. He really did mention them in his prayers. He really did pray for them unceasingly, always. Whenever the Apostle Paul prayed, Rome, the church at Rome, was part of his prayer life. They didn't know Paul. They'd never met him. And they did not even know Paul's prayer support for them without him telling them. No, the Lord knew and the Lord honored it. And Paul could honestly say, God knows, God is my witness. I said I would pray for you, and I do pray for you. Now, the church at Rome may have heard that Paul said he prayed for them, but they have no proof whether he does or not. But God knew he did. And Paul could state here categorically, God's my witness. I pray for you. I wonder how many of us know the people who are praying for us. 
I guess the question also should be this. I wonder how many of us are praying for each other. How many of us today can honestly say, God is my witness, I pray for you. As part of our priestly service, you and I ought to spend time in genuine prayer for others from our hearts. His prayer was genuine. Secondly, his prayer was constant. In verse 9, he says that he prays without ceasing. And I make mention of you always in my prayers, without ceasing and always. Somebody said Paul probably reached more souls with his praying than with his preaching. For the apostle could never say, I preach without ceasing. I preach always. Because there were times when he was laid up on a bed of sickness or when he was in prison alone. Then his preaching must cease, for his praying could go on as part of his priestly service. You know, Paul the Apostle says, God's my witness, I pray for you unceasingly. I pray for you always. Paul was effective in his service for of prayer because it was unceasing. Spurgeon said, no wonder that they prospered so well when Paul always made mention of them in his prayers. Some churches would prosper better if some of you would remember that would re, you would remember them in your prayer. Your prayer is a service to God as believer priests in which you and I can serve God day and night continually. And we ought to pray continually. You know, Luke's gospel speaks of a lady by the name of Anna, a widow, who was in the temple serving God. And it says of her that she, pray, that she served God with prayers and fasting day and night in Luke 2, 36 to 38. The truth is, as believer priests, one of the ministries, one of the responsibilities we have is to pray. And you and I ought to pray without ceasing. Isn't that what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us? Pray without ceasing. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, the Lord Jesus said of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he spake a parable unto them, to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Beloved, prayer is supposed to be an important and vital part of our lives as believer priests. In fact, prayer may well be the greatest service that you and I can render to God as believer priests in the church of God. We need to pray continually. His prayer was genuine, his prayer was constant, but his prayer was also personal. He says in verse 9, he says, Make him mention of you always in my prayers. Paul in the last chapter of Romans mentions no less than 26 members of the church by name. A church that he never visited until later in his life. A church that he had not visited by the time he writes Romans. But 26 people by name he mentions. And you can guarantee this, if he knew them by name, he prayed for them by name. 
when he says, I make mention of you in my prayers unceasingly and always, you can guarantee he's mentioning as many people by name as he knows. And those names he doesn't know, he is mentioning them collectively because God knows their names. There is power in personal prayer. There's power in mentioning names in prayer. And beloved, we ought to pray for each other by name. I wonder, do we do that? Do we, you know, once a week, do we at least mention everybody in the church by name? We've got to pray for the deacons by name. I wonder, do you take time each week to pray for Bob and Al and Darren and John? Take time to pray for wisdom for them, to, to pray for Darren and John as they look after the treasury and, uh, and so on. I want you to take time each week to pray for the missionaries by name. The Surrettes and the Kaplans and the Dagans and the Evanses. Do we pray for them by name? And indeed, do you pray for your pastors, pastor and myself, by name? We certainly need your prayers. And we ought to pray that way. It ought to be part of our priestly service that we pray for people by name. His prayer was genuine. His prayer was constant. His prayer was personal. His prayer is particular in verse 10. He says in verse 10, and he says, making request. You know, Paul's prayer included various requests, the details of which he doesn't allow us to know what they are here in these verses. <clears throat> when he prayed for these believers by name, he didn't just say, Dear Lord, I pray for Jack, Sue, Mary, and Joseph. Amen. He prayed for them by name, making requests for them. Now, we don't know what those requests are. We don't know whether Paul actually received specific prayer requests for them or whether he had laid upon his heart a burden for them and was making a request for them. But whatever, he did mention them by name and he made specific requests. There were particular requests for these believers. And he illustrates to us the kind of things he prayed for because he even asked for a prosperous journey to Rome. Notice what he says in verse 10. Making requests. If by any means, here is an example of my request, if by any means, now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Paul wanted to go to Rome. Paul believed that God wanted him in Rome. Paul had sought to get to Rome on many occasions, but verse 13 tells us that he had been hindered from going to Rome. And so now when he makes these requests, he requests for a prosperous journey to Rome. You know, when it comes to prayer, there is no detail in life that is too trivial that we cannot make it a matter of prayer. And you and I should pray with prayers with purpose. You and I ought to pray for one another we ought to make our requests known to one another so that we might make our requests known to God. 
and we take opportunity on Wednesday nights to take prayer requests, and that's so that not only might we pray for them on Wednesday night, but so that you might go away on Wednesday with a list of prayer requests for the coming week for certain individuals and certain things they need praying about. It's not just about Wednesday night. Mind you, that's a plug for Wednesday night. You ought to be here so that you can get some prayer requests for the coming week. But the point is that you and I ought to pray purposefully. We ought to pray with particular things in mind when we pray and not just pray generally. As the apostle did. His prayer was genuine. His prayer was constant. His prayer was personal. His prayer was particular. And his prayer was submissive in verse 10. As the end he says, that I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now, Paul recognized that the request must be in the will of God. And in this phrase, by the will of God, he is repeating the divine formula for prayer being answered in a positive way. In 1 John 5.14, it says, If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. So Paul's praying that he would have a prosperous journey to Rome if that be the will of God. He wants to come to them by the will of God to that church at Rome, but he was not going to dictate to God how to answer his prayers. He was asking God to answer his prayers according to the will of God. You and I need to pray, you and I need to remember when we pray that we're seeking God's will to be done on earth as in heaven, not have our will done here on earth. Prayer is all about seeking God's will to be done in our lives, in the lives of others, that God's will may be achieved. You know, sometimes we pray and we're asking God for something, but you know, it's not the will of God for us, and therefore you and I can be very disappointed when God doesn't answer our prayers. But if we pray saying, Lord, what is your will in this matter, and then God answers our prayers according to his will, then you and I will be blessed. And that was what Paul was doing. He wanted to go to Rome. It was, it was top priority in his, in his list. He wanted to go to the center of the Roman Empire. He wanted to go there. He wanted to be able to minister there. But he was not going to usurp the authority of God. He was submissive to the will of God. So should we be when we pray. His prayer was genuine. His prayer was constant. His prayer was particular, a personal, particular submissive, and it was lastly undemanding. Making requests, if by any means. Now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. Notice the phraseology, if by any means. That at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. This is one of Paul's great burdens was that God would permit him to visit Rome and minister the churches there. And for this he prayed. But his prayer was not dictatorial. Paul desired that he might go to Rome. 
but he made no attempt to dictate to God by what means he should go to Rome. Now, we know that he would visit them sooner or later. But his ministry work was keeping him busy from going to Rome. In Romans chapter 15, we're not going to have time, time to read it, but first Corinthians, in Romans chapter 15, verses 15 to 33, he explains what he's been doing, how busy he has been. And, and Paul's ministry, Paul's missionary work, these missionary journeys had prevented him from going to Rome. And every time he tried to go to Rome, something stopped him going and he ended up being somewhere else. He says that in verse 13. He says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto had been hindered. He wanted to come. He tried many times to come, but he'd been stopped from going by God. His heart's desire was to go to Rome, but God kept on stopping him because it was not his will for him to go to Rome. Now we know that Paul was going to get to Rome. In fact, as he writes Romans, he's about to leave Corinth for Jerusalem. But, you know, when he gets to Jerusalem, things go awry. Because uh, instead of being accepted in Jerusalem... And instead of him making a pleasant journey to Rome, I mean, I, I'm sure Paul was looking forward to going on a trip with his friends to Rome. He was looking forward to a pleasant sea journey to Rome. You know, when he was thinking of planning his trip, booking his passage, he was probably thinking of a, you know, a couple of weeks at sea and being able to enjoy some fellowship and some companionship and to be able to enjoy the trip. And what he didn't know was that... Uh, when he finally does go to Rome, it was going to be as a political prisoner, wearing chains on his wrists by a shipwreck instead of, instead of uh, uh, the way he wanted to go. But he did get there, by the way. Okay? Just not the way he was expecting to get there. He gets to Jerusalem, the city turns against him, arrests him, and he makes an appeal to Rome because he's a Roman citizen, and they then ship him off to Rome. Look in Acts chapter 27, if you would, please. Acts chapter 27 and verse 1. Here is a, a snapshot of Paul's trip to Rome. And when, it, and when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners under one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. Verse 14. But not long after, the, after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. And then in verse 40 we read, And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves to the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made towards shore. And falling into a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the sailor's counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves in the sea and go to the, get to the land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of ship. And so it came to pass they all escaped, they all escaped, all safe to land. That was not what Paul planned. 
He had not envisaged that when he was going to Rome, he was going to be on a prison ship, chained up for the trip, end up in the middle of one of the most ferocious storms you can imagine in Rockledon, having the ship being deliberately shipwrecked upon the rocks of the island of Mylita, having to swim ashore, gets on shore, makes a fire, gets bitten by a snake, and uh, you name it, things just don't get any better for the Apostle Paul. This was not his vision of going to Rome. And he gets to Rome, and he's chained a Roman soldier for 12 hours a day. This was not his plan. And eventually he's put to death. But you see, Paul doesn't dictate to God the terms of how he's going to get there. He says, Lord, by thy will. By thy will. He asked them to pray for him. And it's probably a good thing that he did, and it's probably a good thing they prayed for him because of what lay before him. And we too should commit ourselves to pray for each other. And you and I should pray for God's will to be done in our lives. That we seek his face. That we don't mandate to God, we don't dictate to God what we want to see done that we ask God that his will be done. Because only as you and I stand in the center of God's will will you and I truly and genuinely be happy. It's the only place of joy. He's the only place of rejoicing. He's the only place of peace. He's in the center of God's will. And when we pray, like the apostle, we need to pray for God's will to be done. And sometimes... Things don't turn out just quite like we wanted them to. If you had talked to Paul as he's writing Romans and asked him how he was going to get to Rome, he would never have told you the story that we find in Acts 27. But if you asked Paul when he got to Rome whether he was disappointed with what God had done in his life, he'd have answered you, no. Because Paul said that he was willing to be sacrificed upon the altar of service for the glory of God, and all that he did was for God's glory. He counted his own life but dung, that he may indeed win Christ and bring glory to him. So as much as he didn't want to get to Rome this way, the apostle, I'm sure, was thankful. In fact, in Timothy he says, I fought the good fight. I finished my course, and henceforth is laid up for me in glory a crown of righteousness. Paul indeed was satisfied with the will of God for his life. And our prayer should be genuine, constant, personal, particular, submissive and undemanding. Believers, priests, one way in which we can serve the Lord is by prayer, and we should all be faithful prayer warriors. If we're laid up with sickness, we can pray. If there's other things we can't do, we can still pray. Prayer is something you and I can do daily, continually, constantly for the glory of God. We've seen the first two characteristics that are evident in Paul's life that ought to be present in our lives, and that is that he was thankful, that is thankfulness and prayerfulness. 
And I trust that we too are truly thankful for the Lord, we're thankful for one another, and that we take prayer seriously. As believer priests, let's serve the Lord faithfully, particularly in this matter of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today that we can come before the throne of grace boldly with prayer, knowing that, Father, you care about us and you do take an interest in us and an interest in our lives. And, Lord, that you do want to hear our prayers. And we do pray that, Lord, you'd help us to be thankful unto you as Paul was thankful and help us to give thanks for others as Paul gave thanks for others and help us, Father God, to be faithful in prayer as Paul was faithful in prayer. Lord God, we might be faithful believer priests to your glory day by day. Commend your word to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 340. As we close this morning, hymn number 340. Okay, 340, nearer, still nearer. Let's stand and sing. After the introduction, we'll sing the first and the last as we close this morning. stand. 